0: Good morning. Wow. <laughs> Sorry. I hope your all's first session this morning was as invigorating and as spirited as ours was. Uh, that's one of the things I have enjoyed the most about the last few days is just the uh, the energy uh, throughout the conference, not only in the sessions but in the exhibit hall and just those conversations that spill out into the hallways after the session. So thank you so much for thoroughly engaging in, in this annual meeting. It's been uh, uh, very uh, fulfilling and gratifying. And, Uh, It is my pleasure this morning to introduce a member of our host committee, uh, Deborah Hughes. You may have seen that name because she is the executive director of the Susan B. Anthony House. And I was telling Deborah, the, um, the buzz about the Susan B. Anthony House has just been terrific. I encountered several of you who were coming in from the tour there yesterday morning before the keynote. She has also, yes, absolutely. Uh, she has also been directly involved in, in uh, uh, being, leading tours, I think two different tours so far during this annual meeting. So if you have not met Deborah before, you might get to on a couple of these tours. Would you join me in uh, welcoming Deborah Hughes to the podium?
1: Thank you, Kent. What a delight it is to be here. And what a delight it is to have all of you here in Rochester. Upstate New York is so full and rich with history and interpretation. And it's something that we here sometimes take for granted, but we know by the attendance at this conference that those from outside of Rochester are not taking that for granted at all. And we're just really glad to have you here as a as a part of Rochester's community for this week. It's my pleasure to stand before you this morning to introduce to us our keynote speaker, Lynn Schur. Many of you have known Lynn for many years as the correspondent and journalist that she is. She first began her career as a print journalist and still considers herself very much of a writer. As we look at her career, if you read her most current work outside of the box, her memoir, she describes herself as someone who approaches life with wonder. And if you look at some of what she's written and the work that she's done, truly she is following that path of curiosity and wonder as she explores what's going on in our world. In her early career, she was the person assigned through ABC to do all of the work with all of the shuttle launches. Now that meant that sometimes she was getting up as early as midnight to get out onto the pad before the sun came up to make the decision about whether it was a go or not a go. In her role, she had the opportunity to interview Sally Ride related to the Challenger accident. She brought to us that whole experience of people going into space, not just out to the moon and back, but going out and circling around for a while and coming back down. She's also had some very interesting explorations of women. She covered the Ferrara campaign in 1984. She also in 1980 as a political correspondent had won an Emmy for her work covering that election. Some of those females that she covered, you may or may not be aware of. One of her wonderful books is called tall blondes. Lynn being five foot eight, um, which is quite tall for, uh, particularly uh, in early days and uh, makes her just a little bit taller than Susan B. Anthony about a half a head taller than me, (laughs) developed an early curiosity about some other tall women, giraffes. And her book, Tall Blondes, takes you to Africa and teaches you so much about those creatures and the amazing world in which they live and are a part of. One of the things that Lynn adds as she shares her experiences of wonder about people, animals, and communities is an amazing ability to tell a story with authenticity and intelligence. At the Susan B. Anthony house, people are often saying, what would be the best book for me to read about Susan B. Anthony? And we right away pull Failures is Impossible in her own words by Lynn Schier, off of the shelf. Because you can trust the scholarship, the writing is engaging, and whether you're just getting introduced to the topic or whether you know a great deal about it, it's a really fine read. As you look at other works by Lynn Schier, you find the same kind of discovery. Some of the other women that she's had an opportunity to cover included, if you remember, Tyrannosaurus Sue, when she was discovered, taking her into the whole world of archeology span and discovery around dinosaurs and prehistory. From space to prehistory to women's history, Lynn Shear can be someone that you can trust and know can cover a topic well with depth and interest in an engaging and an exciting way. She's been a marvelous friend of the Susan B. Anthony House. There's another book that you should read, which is Susan B. Anthony Slept Here that Lynn co-wrote with Ann Gordon It's a marvelous text. It takes you to many historic sites. I'm sure some of you might be able to tell us that you're from one of those sites around women's history. And there's a video that you can show as well. It is wonderful to be able to have Lynn Scher here for us, uh, to be a part of this conference that she can share with us some of her reflections as a reporter for more than 30 years, some of her depth in the field of history, and some of her wonder about the world that is all around us. And now will you welcome Lynn Scher.
2: Deborah, thank you so much for that very generous introduction. Um, uh, Deborah has, uh, it's the first time I've met Deborah uh, on this journey, Um, and um, she took me on a little behind-the-scenes tour of the house where I have not visited for a couple of years, and I must tell you, my heart always beats a little bit faster when I walk into number 17 Madison Street. It's definitely where my soul is, and to see the extraordinary work that has been done there. So a tip of the hat to you, Deborah, and to your staff. It's those of you who have not been there, I urge you, get over there immediately. It's just... It's wonderful. Um, I, I feel as if I've personally been responsible—not through my books, but because I've told people for at least, you know, several dozen, if not hundreds, of people from the Rochester area coming to see it who had never even heard of it before. So um, it really is looking very spiffy and is going to be even spiffier. I know. Yeah. So I'm very excited about that. Uh, Please forgive me, one correction. Um, Anne Gordon, who is such an extraordinary scholar, did not co- co-write that book with me. It was a woman named Eurate Kazikas and, um but I'll get, I'll get to that in just a minute. In any event, good morning to all of you. I am just delighted to be here in Rochester with you, truly privileged to be in the presence of individuals and an organization that is committed to preserving history, our history. I come from a world that has a rather curious understanding of what you do. Uh something that I recognized when I first stumbled upon a phrase and apparently anachronistic phrase in television news and the phrase is history tape. Now, a history tape at least at ABC News uh is a copy of a program, World News or 2020 for example, a program that aired mm, say yesterday. <laughs> Actually, It's a program that aired one minute ago. As in, does anyone have the world news history tape? That is a a question that is generally asked by a frantic young production associate who's been asked to check on a story or on a fact. The first time I heard the expression, I was aghast. History tape! They think that what happened a minute ago is history? Well, yes. And while it may seem offensive to those of you, and I include myself in this, who actually spend much of their lives writing about real history, i.e. things that happened far enough back in time to be examined through the filter of time, the truth is, in television, if it's not happening now, it's not happening. In other words, it's history. Or to put it more directly, toast. (laughs) Television is nothing if not direct. On the other hand, the history that you preserve is critical to us as a civilization and it is irreplaceable to us as individuals. By safeguarding the homes and the artifacts and the records of our predecessors, you are not only easing the way for historians of the future, you are also stimulating our brains and soothing our psyches and awakening our imaginations. And most importantly, you are linking our past to the future of the next generations. Although I will confess that the children we are aiming at are sometimes slightly confused. There is a story, a true story I might add, about Margaret Chase Smith, the late great senator from Maine. Uh, Long after she had retired, Senator Smith, who was also incidentally the very first woman to be both a a member of Congress and a member of the Senate. Um, Anyway, Margaret Chase Smith um, had retired and she visited an elementary school, the Margaret Chase Smith Elementary School, to talk about her life and to answer some questions from the children. At the end of the session, one bright little kid raised his hand and said very smartly, how does it feel to be named after a school? (laughs) I'm just guessing that no one would dare ask that question about the Susan B. Anthony house at least not here in Rochester. You have chosen to convene in an extraordinary setting, a revolutionary cauldron that fired up so many bold new thinkers and doers. Rochester and its environs truly did transform 19th century America, and I envy you the first time experiences that you are having visiting the homes and and memorials to Anthony and to Frederick Douglass and all the rest. This was and is a very cool place a place to appreciate the power of transformation firsthand. That history is largely why I'm here with you today. My own personal transformation is also part of the story. I've written about it as Deborah pointed out in a memoir called Outside the Box, and the title should give you some notion of how I wanted to set the record straight. Outside the Box is not just a way of thinking or a phrase with many meanings. It's kind of a state of mind that I think stems from our fixation on the giant electronic box that has dominated our living rooms and our souls for so many years and has been my home in journalism for so many years. But I do think it frequently confuses our brains. For example, I was at my mother-in-law's apartment in New York a number of years ago. It was 6 30 PM and Larry, my husband pointed towards the television set. Lynn has a story on the news tonight, he said. Let's watch. Well, I adored my mother-in-law, but she was quite elderly at the time. She was in her late 80s. She was quite frail. But I always knew that that telling her when I was on television made her happy and it sort of brightened her day. And at that point in her life, it was something she could look forward to. So she'd seen me on television many, many times. But I'd never been in the same room with her while I was on television. (laughs) So Larry turned on the TV and I stood aside and we watched Peter Jennings opening World News Tonight and I was trying to figure out where in the lineup my story was and my piece was safely on tape, on a history tape, Uh, my piece was safely on tape which was the reason I was allowed to leave the office early that day and I could be there while it was on the air. So um, the show was going on and finally I figured out my piece was about to come up and I alerted Larry and he said to Diana, okay mom here it comes, now watch. So here's what happened, here's, here's the screen and, she's, and I'm standing right next to the TV. She looked at the screen, she listened to my voice, she saw me on camera, and then the strangest thing happened. She saw me on the TV and then she looked at me in real life. Then she went back to the screen, <laughs> then back and forth, back and forth, for the entire, what, minute and 12 seconds that my piece was on the air. I don't think she saw a word of what the story was about. Had a bewildered look on her face. This incredible woman who had escaped from czarist Russia as a teenager at the bottom of a load of hay, who had come to America and set up a business in the Garmin Center, run it almost entirely by herself, who had raised a child almost entirely by herself, This incredible woman could not figure out how I could be on television and in her living room at the same time. (laughs) Which me was the genuine article. I think it's the kind of confusion that often results when you step outside the box. And I know because it's a position, maybe even a mindset that I've adopted throughout my career, I do it as a reality check. And I think of it as self-preservation or perhaps mutiny. Because my feeling is that if you can't keep straight which you is you, then neither one has a very good chance. Because in the public mind, television trumps real life every single time. The flip side of the Diana story occurred during the very first space shuttle mission. I had just been assigned and I was down there covering and it was the, uh, we were there early, early that morning for the liftoff of what was supposed to be STS-1. I was assigned to the VIP viewing area um, where I was interviewing guests and celebrities about what was happening. And it was, there were some genuine celebrities there. Steven Spielberg was there and George Lucas was there and John Denver was there. And then a whole bunch of people you never heard of were there, but it was a, it was a nice assignment anyway. And it was an area roughly the size of this stage outside down in front. So, um, I was busily, Getting all my facts together, and I'm and Frank Reynolds, our then anchor, was in the booth behind me in the anchor booth, uh, putting us on the air. Suddenly, I hear. Oh, well, by the way, I had I had while I was interviewing people, I, there was a camera, and the camera was pointed to me, and there was um, uh, you know, a, a sound guy, and I had a producer, excuse me, who sort of held her arms out like a little um, like a like a bird to keep people away while I was talking, and on the floor on the ground was a little nine inch black and white TV monitor that was angled half at me and half towards the crowd. And the monitor was there so that if while I was on the air, they switched to a live picture or showed some tape of something going on with the space shot, um, I would be able to speak to it and describe what the pictures were. So I'm doing my thing. And now I hear Frank in my little earpiece. I hear Frank Reynolds, um, toss it to me. And he says, we now go down to Lynn Shore, who's at the VIP viewing area to tell us what's going on there, Lynn. And I stood up very proudly and I held my microphone up and the crowd got very, very quiet. And everybody was listening very carefully to my important news I was about to announce. And then I started to talk and then I was startled because I realized, I, I, I am by the way, as Deborah pointed out, five feet, eight, eight inches tall. I was standing there in living, breathing color Every single eye was looking down at the nine-inch black-and-white television (laughs) monitor. Television was real life. Real life simply didn't matter. The truth is that outside the box didn't matter, and for the longest time, neither did I. When I graduated from high school, I knew exactly what I wanted to be, which is exactly what I am, which is a journalist. But four years later, when I got out of college, women were not supposed to have careers, we were supposed to marry them. The perennial joke at my alma mater concerned the college motto, non ministrare sed ministrare. For those of you without a Latin degree or a Wellesley diploma, I will translate. It means not to be ministered unto, but to minister, or not to be passive, but to be active. In other words, to get out there and do what it is that you are trying to do thousands of cynical Wellesley students reinterpreted it as not to be ministers but ministers' wives. <laughs> my feeling, uh, my class captured the feeling further with a, with a show that parodied the whole thing in which we um, showed graduates in training not to be diplomats but diplomats' wives. You will no doubt sleep much more soundly tonight to know that neither Hillary Rodham Clinton nor Madeleine Albright was in my class. <laughs> The real world, however, only reinforced that attitude. When I got to New York and started job hunting, all the doors were slammed shut against female applicants. Like all of my female pals, I was told point blank by every male, white newspaper editor in New York City, we don't hire girls. It was that simple. The interesting thing is that they called us girls and so did we. It never occurred to us to complain. It never occurred to us to think any differently. That is simply the way things were. There was no Equal Employment Opportunities Commission. There was no affirmative action at the time. And so, you know, that's just sort of the way things were. As for television news, forget it. That was another men's club invented by men, run by men, aimed at men. And extraordinary as it seems, as it says, we never questioned any of it. It's just the way things were. So I started out, at, so, so what did we do? Well, we did what we had to do, which is we sort of went around the corner and got jobs where we could just to get our feet in the door. I started out at Condé Nast Publications, Glamour Magazine, Mademoiselle, uh, unfortunately, now defunct, Vogue, House and Garden, um, because Condé Nast understood that women were very good workers who would not demand very high wages. Then I went to the Associated Press, which was at least slightly less threatened by the idea of female reporters. It was at the AP that my personal transformation into your field took place. It happened in 1969, when as a young reporter there, I was covering the earliest signs of the revolutionary just born insurgency called the Women's Liberation Front. We were very scary it was all very new and very threatening to some and those were the days when some women's groups very militant women's groups really serious women's groups would not let male reporters inside which gave me an unaccustomed edge so i took advantage of my access to get a lot of very exclusive stories and i confess i was put off at first by their anger i was unmoved by the protests and perfectly willing to keep them and their stories in the safe distance of the third person. It was after all just another story and it didn't affect me, right? But slowly, inevitably, the ideas started to add up and the message began to seep in. One day while I took notes at their meetings and I was writing, they believe this, they want to do that, all of a sudden, click, the light bulb turned on inside my head. They were I. What took me so long? True, my parents and my education and my attitude had always led me to believe that I could do anything that I wanted, and I had managed to get by despite those obstacles at the beginning when I first got to New York. But suddenly I recognized the larger issues, the social constraints that predetermined how a woman was meant to act, the legal barriers that kept us from even dreaming of certain professions. I'd probably been a feminist forever, but suddenly I knew the name for it. Now it consumed my life as it turned the world upside down. In time I realized that I was not only reporting on this new revolution, I was turning some of the wheels myself, stepping into jobs that did not exist until I got there and then chronicling the social revolution that has literally changed the rules of American society. I think the modern women's movement has brought about the greatest social change in our lifetimes. It woke me up, it gave me purpose, it focused my energy and it led me to women's history, a subject that did not exist when I was growing up. I have a vague recollection that in my own junior high school history textbook, there was a paragraph about some crazy ladies in bloomers who ran around to get us the right to vote. That was the sum total of my education about the entire women's suffrage movement. But now as an adult, after spending hours and months poring over their diaries and letters, I joined a growing number of 20th century feminists determined to set the record straight, to prove definitively that the women who blazed the trail were not only smart and bold and witty, but they did what they did in face of unbelievable odds. The woman who most caught my attention was Susan B. Anthony. Her story seemed both foreign and familiar to me, and her true grit made my jaw drop. She was, of course, born in 1820, a time when the 23 United States of America were ruled by Blackstone's English common law. That's the one that bluntly stated, the husband and the wife are one, and that one is the husband. That got my attention. It meant that a married woman in America had no legal right to any aspect of her relationship with her husband. She could not own property, earn money, make contracts, sue or be sued, or be guardian of her own children. When the law was enforced, which was often, it meant that wives could be seized if they ran away and they could be beaten. It meant that wives had to beg their husbands for spending money and that they lost custody of their children if the father chose to spirit them away. All women, married or not, were bound by a number of additional restrictions, 1820, the year Susan B. Anthony was born. They could not go to college, there were none for women. They could work comfortably in only a handful of professions housework, sewing, teaching, and factories, and when they did work, they generally took home a mere fraction of the pay of their male co-workers. At the time, there were no licensed women doctors, no ordained women ministers, no ordained women rabbis, no women lawyers or elected senators, and, of course, no woman could vote. No woman could vote. Not for school board, not for mayor, and certainly not for president of the United States. But there was no bias in taxation. (laughs) Single or widowed, widowed women who did own property had to pay their dues to a government that would not let them participate in running it. Their circumstances seemed unimaginable to me and yet their boldness in fixing the problems was inspiring. Anthony and her colleagues mounted a campaign that took 72 years to succeed. Their struggle was brilliant and brutal. It carefully, wittily, and sometimes painfully laid the groundwork for virtually every right we now enjoy as women, culminating in that most precious right of all, the right to vote. I even found some common ground with Anthony herself. Like many of us reporters, she spent so much time on the road at a time when travel was considerably less than luxurious, I refer to her in my book as the original frequent flyer. Thirteen thousand miles in one year 1871 alone 54 counties of the 60 in New York State in the dead of winter Has any of you that don't live here ever been to New York State in the dead of winter <laughs> 60 speeches in one two-month swing once I was traveling for six months without a home-cooked meal Anthony told her diary one gets very tired of mediocre hotels and Stage Depot dining rooms. I stopped complaining about airline food when I thought of her eating at Stage Depot dining rooms. Susan B. Anthony became my role model as I learned how she had pioneered so many things we had taken for granted, always with wit and style and good humor. She personally took in a battered wife in 1860, and by the way, she had trouble, uh, the woman found her in um, Albany. Uh, Susan was in Albany visiting a friend, and this woman came to her and told her story. The woman was the wife of a state senator. She was the sister of a, senator from Ma- a federal senator from Massachusetts. Her, uh, she had a child, she actually had several children. On that day, she was with one child, her daughter, Uh, She found out her husband was having an affair, confronted him with it. He threw her down the stairs, uh, hurt her terribly, and then had her confined to an insane asylum, which is something that was very common in those days. She finally got out. She grabbed her daughter, found Susan B. Anthony, and was asking her help in getting some freedom. Susan checked out her story, brought her to New York on Christmas Eve um, on the train, from Albany, they got to New York and they had trouble finding a hotel room because they didn't have a man with them. Susan finally browbeat one of the hotel managers and said, you had better uh, put us up or I will do terrible things to you. (laughs) She incidentally um, um, then uh, arranged to have the woman hidden afterwards and one of her partners, one of the men she worked with in the abolitionist movement, said to her, Susan, you must not do that. It is against the law. The man is allowed to get his wife and child back whenever he wants. And she said to him, and I'm I'm afraid I'm paraphrasing, I don't have the direct quote in front of me, uh, a version of, we break the law every time we hide a fugitive slave. I will break the law for this woman in exactly the same way. Quite an extraordinary person. Uh, This is all in the the litany of amazing things she did then that we think we have pioneered today dealing with battered women. Single all of her life, she urged married women to keep their own names, telling an interviewer in 1871, woman has an individuality as well as man and she should preserve it. Do you suppose that a woman who makes a reputation under her maiden name is going to lose that name by marriage and adopt that of an unknown creature of a husband? She also cheerfully approved of a young colleague who adopted a baby without benefit of marriage, and she published a newspaper edited by and for women, and she railed against the use of tobacco. All of that more than a century and a half ago. Not one word of which was in my US history book. Not one word. She campaigned early and often for equal pay, predicted that women would be in the United States Congress on the Supreme Court and that a woman would one day be President of the United States. That bold prediction came in 1905. We are way behind schedule. She never gave up. In 1905, Grover Cleveland, who was then an ex-president, wrote an article for the Ladies Herm Journal on the, and I quote, dangerous undermining effect of the women's rights leaders. Uh, Other people called them women of emphatic beliefs. Isn't that wonderful? <laughs> anyway, uh, Mr. Cleveland in the article in the Ladies Home Journal cheered the definition of a good wife as, quote, a woman who loves her husband or and her country with no desire to run either. <laughs> oh yeah. Well, Susan B. Anthony was furious, and of course, you know, she was so famous, certainly at that point in her life, 1905, she was 85 years old, that a reporter could just interview her and get a headline and a byline and your career was made. So immediately the reporters ran over to number, I guess it was then number seven, Madison Street, before the numbers changed, over to Madison Street, and he interviewed Susan in her parlor. And the way he writes it up is just so marvelous. She is just pacing back, 85 years old, pacing back and forth the whole time. She's furious about this article that um, uh, ex-president Cleveland has written. And um, she slammed Mr. Cleveland for praising women only only as wives and mothers, and she said his comment that the hand that rocks the cradle rules the world would be fine, and I quote, if you could keep the boys in the cradle always. (laughs) She let no opportunity pass by. When she paid her grocery bill, she stuffed suffrage leaflets in the envelopes. She said for the little boys, it was so they could get on board early, and for the little girls, so they could know what they faced when they grew up. When she, um, I'm sorry, that uh, suffrage, uh, the, that was when she would send out congratulatory notes for a, the birth of a child. That's what she did for the children. But the, the grocery bills, it was just so that the guy paying, uh, the guy um, dealing with the bank account would understand that suffrage was her priority. She visited a monastery in Italy in 1870 something as she's leaving a monastery in Italy, you know, big visitors books, big leather bound visitor book. She signs in the monastery visitor book, perfect equality for women, civil, political, religious, Susan B. Anthony, USA. (laughs) It is reported that the next day lines were drawn through the heretical statements. And I just know you'll love the fact that she attended her first and only football game in 1898. She was 78 years old, greatly respected, very famous. She was in Chicago, freezing, freezing cold. Someone, I don't know why, someone took her to a football game. She was game for anything. Immediately, the reporters ran over afterwards. Miss Anthony, Miss Anthony, what did you think of the game? Well, she said, there's no game to it. They just take the ball and then fall down in heaps. (laughs) Football widows everywhere will appreciate that. Keep in mind that Anthony did much of this after she turned 50 years old, and even that was a groundbreaking occasion. And what I believe, you know, so many of us these days, I mean, I sort of vaguely remember my 50th, um, so many of us these days celebrate our, we think we're so cool having public parties or letting the world know how old she was. She did it, no problem. I think it was the first documented party of its kind for a woman. Um, Her 50th was celebrated at a glittering gathering of prominent women and men in a townhouse in New York City. At a time when most ladies either ignored or lied about their ages, Anthony, according to the New York Sun, had the courage to acknowledge hers. Their headline, a brave old maid. (laughs) She was very brave and very quick, with a deep understanding of so many of the same issues still puzzling us today so many years later. A devoted Quaker whose close friends and colleagues included Jews, Catholics, Protestants, and Mormons, she insisted that one's spirituality was a private matter. She firmly believed that public figures should not dabble in religion, saying, and I quote, I distrust those people who know so well what God wants them to do because I notice it always coincides with their own desires. She was also one of those who fought the losing battle against the then very controversial new dress reform known as the bloomer costume. Anthony abandoned her bloomers after a very short time, about a year or so, because the public humiliation was so devastating. Why, you may ask, did anyone make such a fuss about substituting long, voluminous pantaloons for the body constricting corsets and crinolines of 19th century dresses? why the controversy when not even an inch of ankle showed. I think you might as soon ask why more than a century later so many of us were at first forbidden to wear trousers to work in the 1970s. I think it has something to do with legs. (laughs) Or perhaps wearing the pants. Learning about Anthony and her colleagues was a revelation passing on what I had learned to others became my mission. I think I set a new record at my first television news job, WCBS-TV in New York, Channel 2 News in New York, by covering the Susan B. Anthony celebration at City Hall two years in a row. And I got so immersed in the history of our foremothers that I started writing my books about them. First came a series of calendars, funny, factual, serious, historical, contemporary, as I discovered the contribution of so many extraordinary women. Then a colleague and I started to wonder, so where are these women? And where's the evidence that they were here? No state in the union was without its female contribution to our national heritage, but you would not have known that from reading most standard tour books. Boastful highway markers all over the East pointed out countless beds where George Washington is said to have slept. Nearly every pigeon in America could rest on a statue of a man. (laughs) So why was it that places where women made history had often disappeared without a trace? Such consistent neglect led us to do some traveling of our own and the ultimate result was a book, Susan B. Anthony Slept Here, A Guide to American Women's Landmarks, a state-by-state guide to all the places in America where women made history. Uh, we published the first version in 1976 under a different title. That one was called the American Woman's Gazetteer. And for that version, we identified some 1,500 sites connected with women's achievements. By 1994, with Susan B. Anthony slept here, we added 500 more. With, I might add, great difficulty. Those were the days before internet and email. So we used the phone, we used postcards, snail mail and sent them and contacted every research facility we could find, every state, city, and county historical society that we could find so that we could track down clues to local candidates. Where were you when I needed you? (laughs) We became, operating out of our little desks in New York, in the words of one of our reviewers, feminist archaeologists, tracking down the footsteps of our foremothers across the country with virtually no support. Here is how a typical conversation with a local historian went back then. I would dial the phone. Hello, my name is Lynn Sherb. I'm calling from New York and a partner and I are trying to identify sites in the United States where women made history and I'm wondering, do you have any such memorabilia, any museums, anything, any historic houses in your area? First they would laugh. And then the person would say, why would you want to do that? I'm not making this up. This was the reaction that we got. It went on. It went on. We plowed on, trekking through fields and sifting through files to discover some long buried treasures. Just for example, we located for the first time the church in nearby Henrietta, New York, where Antoinette Brown Blackwell was ordained as our nation's very first female minister. I I knew the house had to be there. I knew it was somewhere in the neighborhood and I actually, I sort of had a map and I was reading old diaries and I found it and the person who lived there was delighted to know and determined to do nothing about it. Um, We inspired a group of women from Washington state to erect a monument to pioneer Dr. Bithynia Owens Adair, all because of our queries and they said, gee, we have nothing to her. We better put up a monument. That was really great. We were also amused to find that some communities were so proud of their native heroines. There were, in fact, as you well know, places where some of these things did exist already, not all that many, Uh, but people in in some areas were so proud that the same site turned up in several different states. For instance, (laughs) we found grave sites for the Shoshone God, Sacagawea, in both South Dakota and Wyoming. I guess that's transformation of another kind, right? <laughs> in the South, there, are at least four, there were at least four different cities in three states, Georgia, Mississippi, and Virginia, claiming to be where Memorial Day originated. And all over the country, dozens of colleges tracked on minute qualifiers to protect their titles as the very first institute of higher education for women. Alas, we also found that too many other sites had been bulldozed. Uh, Too many parking lots where historic houses had once stood. Others had fallen victim to budget cuts and apathy. But from newspaper clippings I later saw and received and via the feminist grapevine, I have learned that in the years since, thanks largely to folks like you, even more sites have been located and preserved. In the years since our books, the movement towards women's full participation in our society has become so much more accepted that history is again being re-examined today with new authority and in the process, even more historic sites have been identified. Some thanks to local boosters, some thanks to new scholarship. Places we visited all those decades ago that would never have attracted sightseers now have guided tours and souvenir t-shirts. I'm thinking here for example of Alice Paul's home in New Jersey and Madam C.J. Walker's offices in Indianapolis, Um, both examples of terrific I want to say restoration, but rejuvenation, a recognition for the first time that these were important sites to preserve. And, of course, Seneca Falls itself. Talk about transformation. When I first came here in 1974, the site of the Wesleyan Chapel, where the first public women's rights convention took place in 1848, was occupied by a laundromat. It was, in retrospect, a perfectly practical lesson in priorities. (laughs) Women got washing machines long before they got the vote, and it didn't even require a convention. This, I should remind you, Seneca Falls was the meeting that resolved to remove women from her circumscribed limits to an enlarged sphere far beyond kitchens and wash tubs. Um, How many of you have been to see Seneca Falls? Oh, good. Well, I hope the rest of you are going... It is a spectacular National Historic Park today. Definitely not a laundromat. Really an amazing change. So why bother making that kind of change? Why bother preserving a house, putting up a monument, or marking a grave? Why bother even visiting? One answer, of course, is the legacy, to mark the places where women made history as a way of realizing that woman's place has been everywhere. The other answer is to understand. It is one thing to read a woman's life story. It is quite another to see where she lived or wrote or inspired or rebelled. The spirit or power of place is compelling. It is such a compelling force that is often the critical factor in shaping an individual. We are drawn to some places because of the narratives of the individual women who have been shaped by or who helped transform those places. Listen to how that power, the power of place, has moved some of our most talented and eloquent and accomplished foremothers. Quote, the country here is really fantastically beautiful, wrote artist Georgia O'Keeffe from her ranch in New Mexico. It is such a clean, untouched feeling. I never get over being surprised that I am here, that I have a house and that I can stay. And that house in Abiquiu is really a wonder to see. Maria Mitchell, Mariah Mitchell, actually I think is how she said it, Mariah Mitchell attributed much of her success as an astronomer to her hometown surroundings in Massachusetts. Quote, the spirit of the place had much to do with the early bent of my mind in this direction, she later wrote. In Nantucket, people are quite generally in the habit of observing the heavens, and a sextant will be found in almost every house. The landscape is flat and somewhat monotonous and the field of the heavens there has more attractions than in places which offer more variety of view. Willa Cather described what it was like to return to her hometown of Red Cloud. Whenever I crossed the Missouri River coming into Nebraska, the very smell of the soil tore me to pieces. How lucky we are to still have that soil and Mariah Mitchell's rooftop and Georgia O'Keeffe's beautiful house to visit so that we can absorb their souls. And how perfect, of course, to have the Susan B. Anthony House here in Rochester, to enter into the world where she lived and thought and wrote. I first visited the house back in the early 1970s, when it was tended by one devoted woman with a lot of love and a lot of concern. I felt so privileged to be in that cradle of feminism, to see her parlor and her wireframe glasses and her alligator satchel bag, to climb up to the musty attic where she carefully recorded her memoirs. Now it's grown into a wonderful show place with a staff and a space for a new generation to organize their own campaigns. The power of place is indeed transforming. Author Sarah Orne Jewett, whose birthplace in South Berwick, Maine provides a valuable look at her own life's work, described her visit to the Bronte sisters home in England some years later. Nothing you ever read about them can make you know them until you go there. Never mind people who tell you there is nothing to see in the place where people live to interest you. You always find something of what made them the souls they were. And at any rate, you see their sky and their earth. The sky and the earth of America's women are our heritage. This is what you are preserving and making accessible. And for that, I thank you very much. But it's not just houses and studios and battlefields and gravesites. You are also the ones who are keeping the papers and the clothing and thus thus the thoughts and the daily lives of our foremothers and fathers from being buried with the years. These two are the magical tools that transform our society. Which brings me back to Susan B. Anthony. She and her colleagues not only started the movement to get us the right to vote, they also understood the necessity of preserving the proof of what they did. They figured out that a century or so later, someone might want, or ought to want, to learn exactly what happened from firsthand sources. They recognized the power of testimonials, and they recognized from their own experience how easily misinformation could contaminate a cause. And so they kept notes, and diaries, and pamphlets, and ticket stubs, and letters, and all the delicious detritus of an event in the making. As in so many other ways, Susan B. Anthony pioneered their efforts to keep the history alive. As a young woman, she was thoroughly conscious of the legacy that she had inherited, and she always paid tribute to the women who came before her. She knew she had become a foremother herself, and she knew then that she had an obligation to pass on that heritage to the next generation. Not by the way that women have cornered the market on this. It was actually Susan B. Anthony's father who I should point out, supported the vote for women long before she did. Uh, her father, Daniel Anthony, in 1855, when Susan was 35 years old, she was just getting started and she was dealing with temperance and abolition and getting started in the women's rights area. Uh, back then, her father is who suggested that she keep a scrapbook of clippings and other notable items. That inspired idea grew into 36, 36 oversized volumes, stuffed with newspaper articles, posters, photos, and odd sorts of memorabilia, which Anthony donated to the Library of Congress in 1902. With them went a dedication challenge to her younger friends and coworkers that they should, quote, not have to work to the end of their days to secure the right to represent themselves. We didn't yet have the right to vote. Anthony wrote something else with her gift, and it reads as follows. That future, gener-, this is in the front of her scrapbooks, that future generations of women may see and learn of the struggles that the pioneers went through. She said she was donating the scrapbooks and all they contain contain that is false as well as true. Now there is a definition of a true scholar. Anthony got it. In preserving the past, we need to keep the bad as well as the good. So So that those of us using our brains decades down the line can make our own analysis of what really happened. The Anthony scrapbooks were a rich resource for me when I wrote the biography Failure is Impossible. I loved going through them and reading the old clips and her notation and discovering all the dusty corners of history. I especially loved finding in one a folded up seating chart of one of the sessions of Congress she knew where every single member sat and she knew how to buttonhole them to get all of her, all of the work done that she needed to get done for suffrage. My other major source for failure is impossible was Anthony's correspondence, a huge array of letters to and from her that has been maintained in various libraries around the country and splendidly brought together in a groundbreaking microfilm edition of 45 reels. When I discovered the microfilm, I thought to myself, well, that's a nice idea, but really I'd actually go through the letters myself because holding, those yellowing sheets in my hand gave me a thrill I had never anticipated. But then I did the math, and I realized that traveling to the number of libraries and historical sites would strain my budget far more than buying the microfilm. So I may be the only private citizen you have ever met who bought forty-five reels of microfilm and a microfilm reader in order to do a book. I should also tell you. I should also tell you that. Um, my initial intent was, because it was, you know, it was a lot of money at the time, and I, I had a very tiny advance for the book, but it really was a lot less than if I'd gone around to all the libraries. And I thought, fine, I'm going to buy this, and when I'm all done, I'm going to donate it to my college lot, to the Wellesley Library, and I'll get a tax deduction, and it'll be fine. P.S. They're still waiting. I'll never give up. This, this <laughs> I just read them from time to time. It's so much fun. Uh, now of course, one of the editors of that edition, the extraordinary Anne Gordon of the, uh, 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 editor of, she's from the Stanton Anthony papers at Rutgers. And I know you're familiar with her work. She's been culling the most significant correspondence of Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton and publishing it in a series of really fine volumes. And that too is transformative. It has changed the way, um, new generations of scholars are able to do the research. And I know many of you are familiar with Anne's work and I hope you all of her, all of you have her books in your libraries because uh, they are invaluable. For people like me, they're simply indispensable. Today I'm embarked on a new Susan B. Anthony project. I'm trying to turn her story into a one-woman play. And while a stage performance is different from a book or a website or a historic house, I'm using the very same tools for my research and inspiration that have served me so well before. Still checking my microfilm still visiting her haunts. Which is all by way of saying, please keep on doing what you are doing. Please continue to preserve the history, and with all due respect for the very fine work you have done so far, I would challenge you to bear in mind some very important guidelines. First, as Abigail Adams begged her husband John, I urge you to remember the ladies. We are more than half the population and just as much a part of American history. Let us never again allow the contributions of our foremothers to fade into the landscape without recognition. When Susan B. Anthony was contacted by the DAR about marking historic spots, she was a legitimate member of the DAR because her grandfather had fought in the revolution. She wrote back and she made sure that they included four mothers. And here's what she wrote. I hope this is to the DAR, which she didn't really have a lot to do with, but she was proud to be a member of it. I hope in your selections, she said, you will be exceedingly careful to distinguish those actions in which our revolutionary mothers took part. Men have been faithful in noting every heroic act of their half of the race, and now it should be the duty as well as the pleasure of women to make for future generations a record of the heroic deeds of the other half. However heroic our pioneer fathers may have been, our pioneer mothers in the very nature of things must have braved all the hardships of the men by their side with the added one of bearing and rearing children when deprived of even the vital necessities of maternity. She wrote that in 1897. Of course, it's still true today. Secondly, when you put the information out there, please put it all out there. The good, the bad, the questionable. As Anthony understood, the warts and the mistakes are critical fodder for any serious historian. Don't clean up their acts. Don't cover up their faux pas. We learn as much from failure as from success. And third, which would probably be first, let us all try to, let us all, all, you, me, all of us, let us all try to make history as interesting as it is accurate. As I tell the young journalists who come into ABC News, facts are not fungible and the truth matters. That goes without saying, but I say it anyway. And there is nothing wrong with making news or history really, really, really interesting and entertaining. We need to get kids into these houses We need to get them reading these letters. We need to get them knowing their heritage. I wish I'd known about the suffrage struggle two decades before I did. I wish my history book or my teacher had been more creative. I've been trying to make up for it ever since. Thanks to you, it will be much easier for the next generations, much easier than it has been in the past. Our history is precious, all of our history. And history, I've learned, is as near as yesterday or one minute ago in the show that just aired. I like to think my own history as a reporter on and off television will be a good lesson as well. I became a reporter for a very corny reason, perhaps the same reason that many of you became historians, to tell the truth, to go behind the curtain and expose the wizardry, to find out why and how and when and where, to help make sense and thus bring some order to what I see as a distinctly disordered world. By an accident of timing and pure good luck, I've lived the glory years of television network journalism, when news was still recognized as a public service, and when getting the story was the only thing that mattered, when we were reality TV. (laughs) I've covered the leap from being dismissed as a girl to telling the world about our first female police officers and judges and astronauts, and our first vice presidential candidate. And I really know things have changed because today I get fewer requests for interviews on the subject of what's it like being a woman reporter. It's a question I could never answer because I have no basis for comparison. (laughs) Anyway, now the question they ask is what's it like being an older woman on television news? (laughs) So I sort of pretend I haven't heard the question. Stepping outside the box also means uttering the unspeakable in my business. Sometimes it's not about television. I have a life, thank you very much, one that I cherish, but one that is very different from the one I faced as a child. When I was growing up, little girls let little boys beat them at tennis, moms mostly stayed at home, and many colleges did not admit female students. Red was the color of communism, not Republican states. And working out was something you did to a problem. You didn't say words like cancer or breast in public. We wanted to be cool, not hot, and hot flashes were news bulletins, not something to endure. (laughs) My father was a professional basketball player who dazzled sports fans long before the jump shot was ever invented, and I owe most of my values to lessons I learned from two decades at summer camp. I am also the only person you have ever met who was on bandstand. If all that sounds like ancient history, it's not, which I know, because I majored in classical Greek in college, which really is ancient history. (laughs) An eclectic addition to my credentials that has made me the poster child all over the Internet for studying the classics. And by the way, if any of you have children or grandchildren or a niece or a nephew, or you advise anybody and they say, what should I study in college, tell them to study in Greek. It really will change your life, honestly. Makes you a better person. So whether it's long ago history or last night's news, whether it's on TV or in a carefully preserved house or a battlefield or a workplace up the street, we have to preserve it to make it accessible, to honor our foremothers. and if ever any of you doubt that our work is needed, please remember again my hero, Susan B. Anthony. It was in her house over on Madison Street that she bequeathed to us some of her trademark good advice. It was 1901, the beginning of the new century. She was 81 years old and her words are a beacon for those of us making our way through our own new millennium. Well, Miss Anthony, the reporter asked, what message have you for the new century? We women, she said, must be up and doing. She was 81 years old. We women must be up and doing. I can hardly sit still when I think of the great work waiting to be done. Above all, women must be in earnest. We must be thorough and fit ourselves for every emergency. We must be trained and carefully prepare ourselves for the place we wish to hold in the world. I am filled with sadness at the passing of the 19th century," she went on. I feel as if I had just buried my dearest friend. But then this new century will be just as good, ever the optimist. Actually I think the new century could be even better. We can ensure that if we can all, women and men alike, continue to be up and doing so that tomorrow citizens and journalists and historians can continue to count on you. I will be counting on you, and I thank you for the work that you're doing. Thank you.
1: Thank you so much, and I think you get a sense of how appreciative we are of what you've shared with us. I thank you. With wonder and inspiration. Thank you. Thank you. We have a few minutes for questions. There's a microphone here in the middle. If you could come to that.
2: Thank you.
0: Ms. Anthony's hope for a woman president (laughs) uh, has not yet come true. (laughs) Uh, Would you speak of the glass ceiling and just how penetrable is that?
2: Um, I, I want to say, I, I, I want to start by saying this is, this is uh, you know, I'm a reporter and I don't, I don't take sides in any of these things, although um, I, I do take sides for women. But um, I've said all along that I thought the first woman president would be a Republican and not a Democrat. Uh, and I think it for the same reason that Nixon is the one who went to China first. In other words, it's, always, it's sort of counterintuitive, and I've, I've just sort of always assumed that would be the way it would be. I, I do not mean to be making a prediction about this year's election. Um, I thought uh, we were going to get close to having a female president this year. Um, uh, clearly in 1984, when Ferraro was the candidate, that was not going to be the year there was a woman vice president. Um, that was the Mondale-Ferraro ticket, and, and people vote for president, not vice, vice president, may I remind you. Um and uh, that, that ticket was a, you know, a disastrous loss uh, for the Democrats. Um, but Ferraro was, a, was a, good, a great candidate until she got caught up in her husband's uh, tax return situation. And as Jerry Ferraro herself would say, what's the lesson? The lesson, you know, don't marry an Italian man. But <laughs> that's, my, that's her quote, not mine. Don't pin it on me. Um, of course, I think we will have an, a, a, a woman president... Uh, I don't know if it will be sooner rather than later. Part of the problem has been the pipeline. Part of the problem has been getting women into a position that of – of leadership positions in the Congress and in the Senate and, as governors, enough of, of a critical mass uh, to get them to the point where they could be there, although I just hear that um, – I hear that Meg Whitman, the former president of eBay, is is – talking about maybe running for Senate or wants to be president someday. So it's interesting that maybe, maybe you don't have to go in through politics all the time. Um, I think it will happen fairly soon. I do not know what's going to happen this year. Um, uh, I'm as confused as the rest of you. Um, People have said to me, what would Susan B have made of the female candidates we've had? She was uh, very supportive of women doing uh, anything. She, she knew there was a difference that women had in politics. She knew that women uh, did not want, were, would eventually not vote the same way. Uh, but she wanted to see lots of women out there. And I think the bipartisanship of getting women in politics has been amazing. I will, I will point out one thing she said. You know, there was a group, not only were most men opposed to giving women the right to vote, most women were also opposed to it. And the women were called the antis. The men were just men against the vote. (laughs) The women were called the antis. Uh, There were plenty of men who were for it and plenty of women for it. But anyway, it it made Susan furious. And she kept saying versions of the following. Don't they realize that they couldn't get up there and make a speech against us if we hadn't been there first and opened the way so that they could make a speech at all? So there's a real dichotomy. And I think, I'm I'm just going to finish this by saying, we are now i fear um, going into a phase where we're getting feminist against so-called feminist and it's and it's um, it's been called red state feminist versus blue state feminist or or gridiron feminist i mean mary madeline was on the air the other day talking about how the women who support palin are the real feminists as opposed to those and i i'm quoting here wellesley educated liberal thinking and i and i immediately sent it off to the college and said, don't you guys want to respond to this? So I think we're in a dangerous (laughs) period here. Thank you for the question. Next. Come on up to the mics. We can hear you. Wasn't the Oneida women also responsible
1: in helping Susan B. Anthony go after her bequest for the women? What was the beginning of the question? I'm sorry. Wasn't the Oneida Indian, Native Americans, helpful?
2: in helping Susan B. Was Anthony? Was the Oneida Nation helpful in yes. helping her get the vote? Um, the United you know Women. What? Yes. Yes, the Oneida Nation. Yeah, yeah the Indian Nation. Um, I know exactly what you're referring to, um, uh, and I believe there were some individual members who were. Susan B. Anthony, of course, uh, was part of the group that was interested in reform of all sorts, and um, the the helping the Indians was a huge reform cause. So I I can't remember specific individuals. I think there may have been, but I know that was certainly one of the causes that she also supported. And there were women, there were suffrage leaders who were very active in Indian reform as well.
1: Excuse me, but this is one of our topics we educate on. The Oneida women specifically helped Susan B.
2: Anthony go after the women's right to vote. And I've got stuff to back that up I'd love to send to you. I love. I'd love to know more about it. It's not an area I know. That one area I don't know that much about. Thank you for pointing it out. That's great. Yes. <laughs> well, just a twist on the glass ceiling. Uh, do you think uh, Susan B. would have found it insulting to women today that while we have made great strides uh, toward equality, that there are still some who feel they must protect us? Giving two examples: uh, combat uh, and the. Vice presidential candidate. Well, let me, uh, uh, let me just say that I think there was a, the women who, who, who led the suffrage movement, Susan and, and Elizabeth Cady Stanton and the great Lucretia Mott, truly believed that women could do anything they wanted to do. Um, they did revert towards the end of the movement to this feeling that women, if, if give us the right to vote and we'll make things better, We're going to be the better ones, and and maybe there was an element of protectionism in there, but basically, uh, yes, I agree with you. Susan B. Anthony would have supported full combat uh, possibilities for women, although, as a Quaker, she was very much against war. And, of course, her father, uh, who was a very strict Quaker, never voted until he voted for Lincoln because they did not support the idea of war and they could not back it. Susan hated the notion of war. Um, she, of course, she, by the way, was against Lincoln. She thought he was way too compromising to the slaves. She didn't care if the nation was torn apart. She wanted to b- abolish slavery and get rid of it immediately. Um, and then she, then she came around. But, um, yes, I think I think Susan B. Anthony today would be in the forefront of saying, um, uh, let's, if there are differences in the genders, let's look at the differences and let's deal with it that way, but don't assume there's a difference and that there needs to be protectionism. Yeah, I would agree with that. Any more questions? Thank you all very much. And as I said, please do what you're doing.
0: As you're leaving, let me remind you that there is a membership luncheon in the exhibitor's hall. At the conclusion of that, we'll ask you to come back to this space for the annual business meeting. And immediately following the business meeting, we have our annual auction back up in the exhibit hall. So we'll be going back and forth for the next couple of hours. Hope you'll join us. Thank you. Oh, and Ms. Shore will be signing books in the exhibit hall. I'm sure you'll want to uh, find her there. Thank you so much.